Today on Stronger Than Reason, there's no mercy shown to New Order's early singles and their first album, Movement. Welcome to Stronger Than Reason. So today I'm going back in a couple of ways. For one, I'm going back to one of my favorite bands, which I've talked about over the course of several episodes now. And I'm slowly working through what I feel is the classic part of their discography. And for another, I'm going way back in time to the period from 1980 to 1982. And I realize I'm jumping around when talking about this band's history. I think that's okay. I'm tackling my favorite material first, so it's not really in chronological order. Though as a rule, I tend to prefer their earlier stuff. And the band, of course, is Manchester's pride and joy, the one and only New Order. And I say that with a bit of sarcasm, since a band with that name exists today with some of the original members, but it's not one that I identify with the band I grew up with. To be clear, though, I wasn't a fan in the early 80s. I had no idea they even existed way back then. I was just a little dude in elementary school. And to the extent I was listening to any music, it was probably Pac-Man Fever and Weird Al Yankovic's In 3D album, the one with Eat It. And by the way, I still have both of those on original vinyl, which I bought back in the day. And I would have dug them out for you, but they're in the crawl space, and we all know I hate going in there. It just kills my back, and it's scary, so forget it. Anyway, back in 1980, I was still in the throes of collecting Garfield books, and dabbling with Dungeons and Dragons. And I still remember the great day that I found an original basic box, the one with the light blue rule book in my locker in second grade in my reading class and thinking, hang on, what's this? And lo, a nerd was born. But I definitely was not hip to the rumblings of British post-punk music or the advent of synthesized 80s dance rock. All of that would come a few years later when in 1984, My sister would get a copy of Duran Duran's Arena album for Christmas, and they'd go on to single-handedly take over MTV, and I would, of course, play their stuff on repeat, not really understanding why I loved it so much. It was like rock, but sounded cleaner, slicker, if that's a word, and I just knew that listening to The Wild Boys and Hungry Like the Wolf made me feel like I imagined Pac-Man felt when he ate an Energizer. Like, I was ready to go hunt down some blue ghosts. But in Manchester, things were changing, too. A little rock band, which was so influential throughout the last years of the 70s, was transforming. They had been known as Joy Division, but Joy Division were no more. The band members agreed to change their name if they ever changed their lineup. So when their lead singer and primary lyricist Ian Curtis sadly ended his life in May of 1980, The rest of the band convened at the pub with their manager, Rob Gretton, and decided to rename themselves and keep plugging away. Of course, the name they chose was New Order. I don't think they meant it to be self-descriptive, but they really were a new order of sorts because Barney Sumner, Peter Hook, and Stephen Morris found themselves adrift without a frontman, and they were used to hyper-focusing on their instruments, guitar, bass, and drums, respectively, and now they had no one to write lyrics, no one to be that focal point, and most importantly, no one to sing. And oddly, none of them could sing and play at the same time, 
And as far as I know, that's still the case, which is a little strange given the number of professional musicians who manage to learn how to do that. I kind of think if music were my livelihood, if that was how I were earning my living, I would make it something of a priority to learn how to play and sing at the same time. And certainly a guy like Getty Lee doesn't want to hear how hard it is for you to do more than one thing at a time on stage. And I realize, Lord knows we can't all be Getty Lee, but come on, I don't think New Order have ever even made the effort. But anyway, it never really occurred to any of them to end the band at that point and go back to their day jobs because they had only just quit their day jobs a short while ago as Joy Division. And when you reach that point of success where you don't have to go into your ordinary job, you kind of don't want to go back. And as far as they were concerned, they'd already made it in the music business and none of them were in a hurry to end the dream. So in a matter of months, they renamed themselves, they decided to stay with Factory Records, and they commenced making music as a new band, stubbornly ignoring the hard fact that their charismatic lead singer, their linchpin, the word guy, was no longer there. So the first thing that they released as a trio was a single called Ceremony, which was backed with In a Lonely Place. And this came out in early 1981, just months after... Joy Division's posthumous second album, Closer, which we have yet to discuss. Now, being a single, Ceremony appeared as the first track on their later singles compilation, Substance, which I discussed way back in episode three. It's still New Order's best-selling album, and I'm sure the only New Order that a lot of people have ever heard. Now, I haven't gone back to listen to what I said in that episode because, frankly, I find my earliest episodes pretty hard to listen to, but I think I told you that Ceremony is and was my favorite New Order song. In fact, it's probably in my top 10 tracks of all time by any bands, and one of my happiest memories that isn't family-related was playing Ceremony live in my basement with one of my old bands and just hearing it come to life in that room with me sitting behind the drum kit. It was just such a weird high in that moment. I can just hardly explain it. So what is it about this song, Ceremony? Uh, To me, it evokes a kind of fall feeling because I first really got into substance at the beginning of my senior year in high school. And I have that tangled up with a weird memory of a bunch of us playing Frisbee in the parking lot over at the shopping center, just hanging out with a lot of friends. And I think it was also around the time that I started seriously dating. So there's like a lot of that feeling sort of mixed in. But some of this comes from the song itself. Just the way it's so driving with Stephen's insistent beat. And it's also really uplifting because it's all in F major and C major. And in terms of music theory, if you want to write an uplifting song, you could do a lot worse than choosing those particular chords. And it might be the most positive set of lyrics Ian ever wrote. They show a lot of defiance in the chorus, which goes, I'll break them down, no mercy shown, heaven knows it's got to be this time. So it gives you a real me against the world kind of feeling, like, bring it on! And the music backs that up. The song has amazing dynamics. I know we talk about that a lot on here. It has like very quiet verses, loud choruses, and a breakdown at the end that gets very quiet indeed before just hammering the song home at the end. And I love that it's just so simple. We always say around here, the slogan, you know, that's going to be on our eventual bumper sticker. That's right. Simplicity is power. 
And as a budding guitarist back in the early 90s, even I could plunk along to this song. The big guitar lead in the middle has just four different notes, and I would hazard to guess that anyone could learn to play it. Your grandma could play it. You sure didn't need to be Ingve J. Malmsteen. So it really illustrated, much like most of New Order's songs, how accessible their music really was. Uh, music is something that all of us can play. And that's a feature that's baked into everything Joy Division and New Order ever did, especially in the early days when they still approach things from the perspective of punk. Remember, these folks first picked up instruments after seeing a Sex Pistols show, not after seeing a Yes show or King Crimson or Emerson, Lake and Palmer. So they were paying it forward in that punk way, demonstrating to the next generation that anyone could make music, which I think is super cool. And Ceremony is a fantastic example of that. It just never fails to make me smile. And anyway, it's well-loved by everyone and has been covered to death. Uh, Radiohead do a very straightforward cover of it. Check that out. It's pretty much the only Radiohead I've ever listened to. Now that I think about it, it's just not a band I was ever into. So Ceremony's B-side is In a Lonely Place which is maybe the darkest thing they ever recorded, which is saying something. And it's funny because Ceremony is maybe the lightest thing they ever recorded. And even more ironic because Joy Division once released a single called Licht und Blindheit, a German-titled single that was released, of course, only in France, which translated to Light and Blindness. And it included the songs Atmosphere and Dead Souls, and yeah, I get that Atmosphere is a slow and beautiful song and Dead Souls is hard and dark. But to me, Ceremony and In a Lonely Place are much better examples of light and blindness. In fact, In a Lonely Place is so dark, it's something that would get played at Andrew Eldritch's funeral. It's just unremitting doom and gloom. And for one thing, it's really slow. It's in D minor, which is, of course, the saddest of keys. For another, it's underpinned with a low synth note and sudden thunder effects, which make it pretty unsettling. But maybe the creepiest thing about it is how the third verse references a hangman. It's maybe just a bit too on the nose, given what happened to the band. And anyway, a very, very dark song and a weird one to juxtapose with Ceremony. But these weren't New Order songs. They were both Joy Division songs. They were the last two songs that Joy Division ever wrote. In fact, there are recordings of Joy Division playing these songs with Ian singing. And some of these recordings were practice takes. These first appeared on the Heart and Soul box set in 1997. For In a Lonely Place, London Records edited out the controversial third verse and called the track In a Lonely Place Detail, you know how art galleries use the qualifier detail when reproducing just part of an artwork, so that was cute. Later, the full version would, of course, come out over the interwebs. Factory also released the only time Joy Division performed Ceremony at their very last show. This, of course, was on their compilation Still, which I talked about way back in episode 17. And I think it's kind of spooky and weird how we're left with a recording of Joy Division's final show and it's weirder that they played Ceremony there, the way that song would sort of be a bridge to all that would come later. Now, all of these Joy Division recordings were flawed in various ways. The sound was muffled and terrible, and in the case of the live Ceremony, the tape op missed the beginning of the song, and Ian's mic didn't work through the first verse, all of which seems criminal now. 
But the band thought the songs themselves were good enough to properly record, even without Ian. So they trooped into the studio with Martin Hannett to lay them down, and that went well enough until the time came to sing. The first problem was that they didn't have Ian's written lyrics. So according to Barney, they had to run Ian's practice takes through an equalizer to try to make out what he was saying. And they ended up writing down some approximation of his words. And just a side note, years later, Ian's widow, Debbie Curtis, would publish some of his lyrics, including those for Ceremony, in her memoir, Touching from a Distance, which we've talked about before. So a mystery no longer. But the second problem was... Who exactly was going to sing? And it should be said that no one jumped at that opportunity. Each of the three were pretty happy staying in their lanes. But Rob encouraged all of them to have a go. And by all accounts, Martin Hannett was disgusted with the results because (laughs) none of them could compare to Ian. In his mind, Joy Division was one genius and a bunch of wankers. Well, now New Order were just a bunch of wankers. And... That wasn't something he could solve with EQ and reverb. So finally, after much hemming and hawing, Barney reluctantly agreed to sing. So that's him on the record doing his best Ian impersonation. Interestingly, the version on Substance wasn't the first one recorded. They recorded an earlier version as a trio. And this is what came out first in January 1981, first as a 7-inch and then on this 12-inch with this green sleeve. Now, I have to put an asterisk here because there are about a million versions of each of their singles, and I'm sure there are some green sleeves with the later re-recording. So for God's sake, don't quote me on this. But generally, the green sleeve means the original trio version. Nowadays, of course, all this stuff is readily available, but back in the day, it took me a long time to hunt this copy down. And this version was really different from the later version, which is on Substance. It was noticeably slower, it had a heavier beat, it had more bass. I didn't really like it as much. It just seemed to me that the energy level was a bit too low for my taste, but it is an interesting curiosity. So a few months later, they partially solved the singer problem by bringing in a new person into the band. And the idea was to have another guitarist, keyboardist to backfill Barney when he was singing. And the FNG, or the fabulous new girl, as we say, was Steve's then-girlfriend, later wife, Jillian Gilbert. And she was a musician herself, having played guitar in a band called The Inadequates. And she famously filled in for Barney at the odd Joy Division gig, as Barney relates in the documentary New Order Story, where he tells how He cut his hand open when he and Ian were backstage fooling around with some broken bottles, you know, like you do. And then they recruited Jillian to finish the gig. And Barney joked that they then realized that when Ian died, she'd be the perfect replacement. So now that they were back up to four members, they decided to re-record Ceremony, giving us the absolute perfection that is the version that's on Substance. And this later came out on a separate 12-inch single that was cream-colored with a blue stripe down the middle. So if that weren't enough for the collectors, they quickly recorded their next 7-inch single, which was Procession, which was backed with an edit of what would become their third single, Everything's Gone Green, both of which were very forward-thinking synth rock tunes. Uh, Procession came out as a 7-inch with this fairly simple sleeve design, except for the fact that they printed each copy in one of nine colors. So have fun trying to track all of those down. 
Uh, both of these were really cool songs, in my opinion. Procession is really upbeat, even more so than Ceremony, with some really nice guitar and bass riffs. I used to play along to the bass line in my room on my little $4 acoustic guitar my dad got me. So, again, not a lot of guitar heroics going on here. It's suitable for a beginner to play along to. Uh, the song has some good dynamics, too, getting more intense and then more laid back. It's just, it's just a great little pop song. And strangely, this is one of the few New Order numbers to feature Jillian on backup vocals, which is a shame because she has an excellent voice, which anyone who's ever listened to the band, the other two, can attest to. And I think Barney just thought it was corny to have a girl sing backup. So he kind of discouraged anything further in that direction, which is a damn shame in my opinion. Because if you really think about it, they should have just had Jillian be the front woman for New Order. I mean... Problem solved, right? The boys who couldn't sing and play at the same time would be free to play their instruments, and Jillian, on the other hand, would get all the glory, joining the ranks of Patti Smith and Susie Sue and Chrissy Hind as one of the great alternative rock front women, all of which sounds great, except Jillian, per Stephen in his memoir, had zero interest in fronting the other two, and she actually had negative interest if that's possible. She was absolutely dead set against it and refused to sing live. Singing on a recording in a studio, that's one thing. Singing live in front of many other human beings who are judging you is another. And <laughs> I'm not sure if that was her opinion back in the early New Order days, but if so, it was probably a deal breaker. And also, Barney may have had something of an ego and secretly decided that he fancied being on the mic, so she probably would have had to beat him over the head with a bottle of Pernod, and it just wasn't going to happen. But it is fun to think about. Anyway, Procession is a tight little pop gem, and it puts some serious daylight between New Order and Joy Division. And side note, Hookie says that Steven was the primary composer of that song, which is pretty interesting. Everything's Gone Green, though, would take an even larger step into the future by introducing synthesizers playing pulsed 16th notes. So they really weren't using sequencers yet. They were just playing the synths by hand and just using a setting to modulate the output and sync with the beat, or almost in sync, because it wasn't really synced. And they mitigated this by manually pressing the keys again, just repeatedly through the song to re-trigger them, which is pretty funny. And they just did it regularly enough that you didn't notice it drifting a little bit. Uh, but this song doesn't have a drum machine. But it sounds like it does because they had the next best thing, which is Stephen Morris, who, after all, was a tremendous fan of kraut rock bands, especially Can, and their Molteriche beats. But the real star of the show here is Peter Hook, who, let's face it, is aptly named because he's the one bringing all the melody and cool licks to these songs. And he lays it down here, providing the main counterpoint to Barney's vocals. And fun fact, Peter Hook was actually born Peter Woodhead and only took the surname Hook from his stepfather later, much like how Barney was born Bernard Dickin and took Sumner from his stepdad. And I had known about Barney from way back, but I didn't realize that about Hookie until reading his memoir a few years ago, which is kind of interesting. There's always more to learn. Now, I should point out that the version of Everything's Gone Green on the Procession single on the B-side was just an edit, of course, since the single was a 7-inch. The 12-inch version would be New Order's third single, 
which would come out a little later, and we'll get to that. It came out after the release of their first album, Movement. Yes, Movement, New Order's debut album released in November of 1981, when I was collecting Garfield, playing Donkey Kong, and trying to grasp the concept of armor class. So yes, I wouldn't discover the wonder of these songs until nearly a decade later when I was in high school. Uh, The album cover here, of course, is very simple. It was designed by Factory's in-house graphic designer, Peter Saville, and is more or less a rip-off of a design by the Italian futurist Fortunato Depero. And if you look at it just right, you'll see this F here, which is a reference to Factory, of course. And down here you have an L shape, which is a reference to this being Fact 50, which was uh, its catalog number in Factory's peculiar numbering system. And trust me, all of this makes sense. But regardless, I understand the band started writing these songs in the summer of 1980, very shortly after Ian's death. And as such, they all more or less sound like Joy Division. And that was only natural. Procession and Everything's Gone Green sounded much newer, but they were also written much later, even though they all kind of came out around the same time. So I imagine it might have been weird to hear so much of the Joy Division sound on movement back in the day. Uh, Martin Hannett produced this album with a very young Flood helping out. In fact, it was one of Flood's first studio credits. He might have been just making the tea for all we know, but legend has it he made so much tea that it led to him getting his nickname. But, you know, it's hard to say for sure. Anyway, there is a definite sonic continuity between Closer and Movement, Hannett brings that same peculiar sonic space that he defined for Joy Division. But on movement, the mix is strangely muddied up, almost as if you were trying to obscure the vocals, since, you know, they weren't Ian, and maybe it was a little passive-aggressive on his part, perhaps, or maybe it was his attempt to discourage these wankers from attempting to fill Ian's very big shoes. But whatever it was, even the band is dissatisfied with the production these days, and As for me, I think this album does take a lot of crap, but it was pretty remarkable that it exists at all, that they bothered to make it after such a stunning blow. And if you think about it, this really is the third Joy Division studio album. It just happens to have different lyrics and vocals from what Ian would have come up with. After all, Ian had very little input into the band's music because he didn't really play an instrument himself. I mean, yeah, the band forced him to play some D major chords on his Vox Phantom in the video for Level Terrace Apart, but he was the first to admit that he wasn't really a guitarist. So yeah, Movement really is the third Joy Division album. This is exactly the music the band would have come up with. And there are some cool songs here, so let's take a look at the track list. Things start off with Dreams Never End, and it starts with a patented hooky bass riff, And it's a surprisingly upbeat little pop song. Maybe not with the balls that they'd later find on Procession, but it's a solid tune. And most interestingly, Hooky sings it as well. At this point, Barney hadn't yet won the singer's sweepstakes. And you know what? It doesn't really matter which of these folks sang the songs, because in a few years, entire genres would open up that took the focus off the lead singer. Shoegaze, for one, it would just drown the vocals in a great wall of swirling guitar noise. And, you know, the person who was actually singing and whether they were any good would hardly matter. And neither did the words. It was all just texture. 
So I would argue that the guys here did a fairly good job as vocalists, if not as singers, because, you know, a singer has to be able to sing, but a vocalist just has to vocalize. So it's an easier gig, believe me. So Ian was a singer, but the others weren't Ian, and that's why the record said New Order on the sleeve and not Joy Division. So Dreams Never End also had a pretty sweet guitar riff in the chorus. It's just a cool little tune, and it's a fine opener for this album. And that goes into the second track, Truth, which is interesting since it's the first New Order song to use a drum machine. And that's a pretty big step when you consider it. Because Steven had to swallow his pride and get out from behind the kit to play some keyboards. And that took some guts and confidence, especially for a guy who could play the drums as well as he could. I mean, strategically speaking, if you're in a band with Steven Morris, you want him playing the damn drums. (laughs) That's what you want him to be doing, not standing behind a keyboard. And he's just a huge asset at what he does the best. So yeah, it was a risk. Fortunately, Steven is also a huge gear nut. He was always chasing the latest tech. So he was more than happy to learn how to program drums and fool around with keyboards. It was just more for him to you know, more buttons to press and lights to see blinking and so on. Now, Truth, though, is anything but a dance number, even though it has a drum machine. It's pretty much a dirge all the way through. And to be honest, it's not tremendous fun to listen to. Although, although, Barney does bust out his melodica, which is always nice. But there are a few of these funeral-type songs on here, which is why this album has a reputation for being a bit of a slog. And we'll talk about those. But the third track is Senses, which is driven by Steven's tom-tom work with some random banging noises. Also some nice bass work here from Hooky. Some nice synth from Jillian at the end. A pretty good tune. And certainly anything but a dirge. Chosen Time is track four. I always like this song for Jillian's synth bass. uh, It has a really cool uh, motion to it. And it's actually a pretty fast song with Steven delivering something like a disco beat. And of course, it has some cool trademark hooky bass. And it still sounds like Joy Division to me, but you can hear that they're starting to introduce more atmospheric synths, especially at the ends of some of these songs. And this one in particular, Chosen Time, kind of devolves into some random bleepy noises. And that ends side one, and side two starts with ICB, which Hooky confirmed stood for Ian Curtis Buried. And this song is most notable for the weird bird chirping effects, courtesy of Steven and his Sin Air. And that, he did that on a few Joy Division songs too. I think Insight might have been one of the songs he did that with. Uh, and I gotta say, this version of the song is cool, but it doesn't exactly blow me away. But it has the roots of a pretty catchy pop song. And this was made clear to me in 2007 or 2008 or so when I was a part of the New Order online community. At the time, they were putting together a tribute album. So fans in the community would cover their favorite New Order songs. And it was pretty fascinating to me for a few reasons. For one, it opened my eyes to the fact that the technology was such that you could now purchase a digital audio workstation and start making real music on a home computer, which I promptly did. And for another, I was really impressed with the creativity of these folks who were, for the most part, not professional musicians. They were just fans like me. But one dude or gal, I'm not sure which, was named C. Bentley, and they covered ICB. 
and really just polished this song up. And fortunately, this version is still out there on YouTube. You can check it out. Uh, it goes much further with the vocal treatments and the electronics. It has a much more modern feel. And it makes you take another look at ICB and realize what a cool little pop song it really is. So good job, C. Bentley, wherever you are out there. Uh, in fact, I narrowly missed this covers project at the time, and I didn't really have enough time to submit my own cover, but I did put one together under an early band name, and I'm somewhat embarrassed to say it's still out there on the webs today. It was maybe the first real thing I recorded on a computer. Everything prior to that had been on a four-track recorder. And listening to it again, I think it still holds up somewhat today. There's plenty I would do differently, of course, and I would totally redo the vocals. They're just complete crap. Uh, next up is the hymn. That's H-I-M, which of course is a homonym to hymn, which is H-Y-M-N. This is another one of those slower minor key sorts of tunes mixed with a harder, faster chorus bit. So again, like cool dynamics. And this song makes me realize how much Stephen Morris put a kick drum on every beat in a song. I noticed this growing up, listening to Joy Division and New Order. So I just assume that's how you played the drums. To the point when I started playing drums in my 20s, for the first few years, I kept a kick on every beat. And the problem is that unless you're Stephen Morris, it makes your beats sound really stiff and terrible. And I foolishly did that through my first stint in a live band in 97 and 98. Fortunately, the other guys in the band, including my dad, who was on bass, were new enough to playing that they didn't notice or care. The trouble was we had a guitar teacher, but not a drum teacher. And the fact that anyone could kind of play the drums was just a bonus. It was just gravy. No one really cared what I did behind the kit as long as I kept something like a beat. But I distinctly remember the time a few years later when it finally dawned on me that most rock drummers only played the kick on the one and the three. It was kind of like the world opened up and anything seemed possible. Uh, very much like the time on guitar when someone finally taught my dumbass what a bar chord was. So think of all the time I wasted not knowing what I was doing because I didn't have a teacher. So learn from my mistakes, folks. Don't be afraid to get a few proper lessons because learning the right way is much easier than unlearning the wrong way. Anyhow, Playing along to a lot of James Brown and Parliament and Chili Peppers eventually sorted me out to the world of funky kick drum patterns. And Stephen can get away with the four on the floor stuff because he's Stephen Morris. And the rest of us mere mortals, we just can't swing it. So on to track seven, Doubts Even Here. This is another tom-tom heavy minor key synth dirge, not terribly unlike in a lonely place, in fact. Except for one major difference... Hooky singing instead of Barney. Uh, I'm guessing it's probably fun for Hooky to do this number and Dreams Never End these days with his band, The Light, since he's the proper singer on these tunes. Anyway, the other notable thing about Doubts even here is that it's another song with Jillian on background vocals, this time reading something quietly over the song's end. Again, it's a shame, I think, in my own personal opinion, that she didn't sing some more her vocals would have really, really differentiated New Order from Joy Division. And let's face it, it would have broken up what was essentially a boys club by this point, which is not to downplay Jillian's role in the band. For sure, she's a role model to millions of girls and women, an icon, really. 
a woman in a rock band playing guitar and keyboards and not just up there singing. Her very presence on the stage spoke volumes. I guess I'm just a fan of her singing and I think New Order would have been much better with more of it. That's all. Finally, the closer, Denial. This is another fast number led by Stevens' very inventive drum patterns and is maybe as intense as movement gets with the band hammering D major and G major over and over. And I don't know, it seems to me that most New Order songs are in D. Maybe it was a favorite chord. Maybe it was the go-to. Remember, it's the chord Frank Zappa hated because so many hippies built songs around playing it and waggling their little finger. But the key of D does lend itself to open chords because if you're playing an open D, you can switch to open G for the fourth and then open A for the fifth. So it's all very easy to play without any bars. So maybe that was it. Uh, I'd say it might have something to do with Barney's vocal range, but according to Hookie's memoirs, they didn't really factor that in until they started working with Stephen Haig in 1987. It just had never, never occurred to them that the band could transpose a song to accommodate the singer's range. In their minds, that was just too hard. He would just have to learn to sing it. I mean, how would everybody else relearn all their parts? So it was pretty funny. And that was the end of the album, just eight songs. And... A whopping 35 minutes, which is practically an EP by today's standards. Uh, Certainly some CD singles in the 90s were longer than movement. So in terms of New Order studio albums, I've already stated that Technique is my favorite and Power Corruption and Lies is my next favorite. So is movement my third favorite? Probably not. (laughs) So why am I talking about it? And the short answer is that I really, really like the non-album tracks from this era. And, you know, oddly, there are enough of them to form their own album. So New Order really recorded two albums worth of material before Power, Corruption, and Lies, which I think is pretty interesting. And so far, we've already talked about four of these tracks, Ceremony, In a Lonely Place, Procession, and Everything's Gone Green. But there were several more. Uh, In December of 81... They released, as I mentioned before, a 12-inch single of Everything's Gone Green that had the full, unedited version of the A-side along with two new B-sides, and they were called Mesh and Cries and Whispers. Now, there's been a lot of confusion about these tracks over the years, starting from the fact that Everything's Gone Green on the sleeve had printed the two songs in reverse order as they actually appeared on disc. And then Substance incorrectly listed Cries and Whispers as Mesh and omitted the real Mesh entirely. So, I'm here to solve this dilemma. It's very easy to tell them apart, and I'll tell you how. Mesh starts with a hooky bass solo. Cries and Whispers starts with a faded-in synth pad. That's it. It's very simple. They're two very different songs. Cries and Whispers has a more dancey feel, and Mesh is... More of a straight rock song sounding like a movement outtake, which it very likely was. I think uh, both of these songs were super cool, though, and fit very well into this era's very particular sound palette. They all sound like they're of a piece. Uh, So on the Venn diagram, if you think about the Venn diagram of the Joy Division sound overlapping the modern New Order sound, these songs would fit right in the middle. And why did I not print out that diagram. I don't know. I I can't do it all, folks. 
Anyway, let's take a moment to realize that all the releases I've talked about so far, so ceremony, procession, movement, and everything's gone green, they all came out in 1981. And I think that's a pretty amazing set of releases for a single year. But they continued writing into 1982, of course, and they would release one more single in this era, and that would be Temptation. Temptation, of course, is one of their signature tunes, perhaps only second to Blue Monday. And in the mind of Factory Records boss Tony Wilson, it was the song in which Barney finally found his true voice, separate from Ian. And maybe that's true. I don't know. But it does feel like they finally shrugged off that Joy Division sound for good, probably because it's the first time the band recorded without Martin Hannett in the producer chair. In fact, on this single, they produce themselves, and the music reflects that. It's much more raw and unrefined, completely lacking Hannett's patented sense of space. And when I first heard Temptation, it was the version on Substance, which the band had re-recorded in 1987. So this later version is much more slick, much more well-produced, and though it sounds better in some ways... We're still talking about the original single version here, and it came in two flavors. You had the 7-inch and the 12-inch, and the 7-inch was actually a separate recording. It was not an edit. The band just figured in their weird way that it would be easier to record two separate versions. What's interesting about that is you were supposed to listen to the 7-inch first and then the 12-inch, and that way you got one great big version of the song, because see... The 7-inch fades out, and the 12-inch fades in, so they were meant to go together. And if I'm not mistaken, they even put that as instructions in the run-out grooves on the, the vinyl single. But yeah, Temptation is a cool song. It's a pop classic. It's notable for Barney's ooh-ooh-oohs, which Ian never did. Both Temptation and Hurt feature the band's first sequence synth parts, they must have bought their first sequencer at the end of 81 and just had it ready to go over the winter because in both of these tunes, it's providing little background arpeggios and kind of filling out that texture. So it was a big step for them, kind of on par with first using a drum machine because they were embracing new technology. And, you know, as we say today, they were early adopters. And that would give them a healthy head start over all the other bands of the day, at least throughout the 80s because everyone would eventually catch up. But, you know, that's another story. However, I personally think Temptation suffers a bit these days from overexposure. For sure, the band, such as it is today, plays it in every single show. Uh, Barney seems to think the fans expect it and would be disappointed if they didn't hear it. Uh, He's also on record as saying he'll never get tired of playing it. And I don't know if that's a good thing. I mean, it's easy for me to get tired of hearing the same song over and over, even if it's a song I like, and even if Barney doesn't get tired. But side note, on the original 12-inch version at 50 seconds in, you can hear some yelling, and that's Hooky and Steven stuffing a snowball down the back of Barney's shirt. I just thought you'd want to know that. But yeah, I'm not going to go into Temptation in any more detail, other than to say I think it's... uh, A very simple song, and it's another good one to play along to if you're just learning an instrument. It's just three chords, C, F, and G, all majors. It's just dead simple. Hurt, the B-side, is a pretty energetic song. Maybe their attempt at a rock banger. Uh, I think if it suffers from anything, 
It's just the completely off-the-wall lyrics because they make no sense and they don't really scan. Uh, but it has a definite anything-goes feel, which I think is appropriate for a B-side. You want your B-side to be a little a little uh, improvised, a little wild, a little unpredictable. That's what they're for, after all. And it, it definitely fits in uh, sound-wise with these other non-album tracks that we've been talking about. So somehow in the midst of all this recording, their manager, Rob Gretton, booked them for their first American tour in September of 1981, just playing a few dates in New York City and New Jersey. Now, this was the band's first taste of the States. If you recall, they were originally scheduled to make this trip as Joy Division, and that trip was originally scheduled to happen the day, as it turns out, after Ian died. So he died on a Sunday and Monday was the day that Joy Division were supposed to depart, hence Blue Monday. Anyway, this tour was famous for a couple of things. For one, the band had all their gear stolen when one of the roadies failed to secure the truck, so they had to borrow and beg gear to play all the gigs. And for another, they visited all the hot New York nightclubs, which gave them their first peek into club culture. Now, much of their inspiration for the next few years would hinge on wanting to have these sorts of fashionable clubs play their records. This would heavily influence New Order toward making dance records and would encourage them to partner with Factory to open their own next-generation super club in Manchester, the Hacienda. And three, they refused to play any Joy Division songs or even talk about Ian or Joy Division in any way, which of course was a huge disadvantage for them not parlaying their earlier renown, but at least they couldn't be accused of selling out or riding on Joy Division's coattails. Performances from this tour would be immortalized on the video they called Taras Shevchenko after the 19th century Ukrainian poet, since the performances were filmed in the Ukrainian national home in the East Village. Later, they'd be recollected on the release called New Order 316. And speaking of re-releases, the North American market was starved of all these cool non-album tracks, so Factory took pity on us Yanks and released a five-track vinyl EP in the States appropriately titled 1981-1982. And given the catalog number Factus 8, it being the eighth release from Factory's United States affiliate. This thing collected the 12-inch mixes of Temptation, Hurt, Everything's Gone Green, Procession, and Mesh. And naturally, our friends up north put it out on this CD here as FEP 313. I think the packaging is very cool. If we look at this, it has a nice silver CD. Pretty nifty. The cover art is pretty cool. It's a painting by Martha Ladley, who was at the time dating factory designer Peter Saville and who fronted another factory act called Martha and the Muffins. And I remember back in the day, someone on the ceremony mailing list describing this cover painting as being like a Mondrian on acid, <laughs> which is funny and pretty accurate. Anyway, this was super hard for me to track down on CD back in the mid 90s. And you can bet I was really pleased with myself to get this little thing. And I also have a poster of this cover, which graced nearly every dorm room and apartment I've had over the years. And I even had the thing up here in the old studio bunker for a time, but now it's propped up over there against the wall behind a big pile of crap. Maybe I'll someday hang it up again because it is one of my favorite New Order covers. And by the way, they collected all of these non-album tracks on the bonus disc 
to the 2008 reissue of Movement. So it is possible now to get all this stuff on a single release these days, which is pretty nifty. So there you go. You got eight tracks on Movement and eight non-album tracks, not counting all the various versions and flavors of each that you can find. If you're a train spotting collector type, which of course I am, but I'll spare you. But hang on, folks, there are actually two more non-album tracks that fit into this era as well. But you ask, if they weren't released on albums or singles, then what the hell are they? And the answer is... The Peel Sessions! Yes, that's right, we talked about John Peel and his influential BBC radio show, and how he recorded hundreds of bands, and that was back... In the episode we did about Power, Corruption, and Lies, number 44, go back and listen to that for more details. But New Order recorded two Peel sessions back in the day, each with four songs. Much later, they would record a couple more, but in this classic period that we're talking about, there were just the two. And they were collected on this beautiful disc, which came out on the Strange Fruit label. And again, Peel Sessions, in a nutshell, were exclusive versions of songs recorded more or less live in Peel's studio very quickly and with minimal overdubs. So New Order's first session from January 1981 is a little less interesting to me because it has just live versions of Truth, Senses, ICB, and Chosen Time, all of which appear in proper form on movement. So, meh. But the second session has some interesting stuff. It has Turn the Heater On. Now, this was a cover of a dub reggae song originally released by Keith Hudson, of whom Ian was a big fan. And I gotta say, this version sounds almost nothing like dub reggae. <laughs> played as it is by some extremely awkward and shy folks from northern England, but it is pretty cool nonetheless, and it fits very well sonically into these other non-album songs that we've been talking about. Then we also have the versions of We All Stand and 586, which, as we discussed, appeared in their proper form on Power, Corruption, and Lies. And again, the 586 version is especially great, if you recall. And finally, a curious song called Too Late, which has some really nice hooky bass licks. In his memoir, Hooky goes on about this song for some pages, describing it as one of his favorites at the time, but for unexplained reasons, Barney hated it and refused to ever revisit it. So it didn't wind up on the next album or a single or anything else. Barney just quietly buried it. And these days, Hooky attributes it to spite, but who really knows? I guess, uh, you know, I do tend to take Hooky's side in these matters, if only because he's the more articulate of the two. He's written three books to Barney's one, and his books are always very entertaining. But yeah, Too Late is another song that fits into this era. So the final count, we have eight album tracks and ten unique non-album tracks, not counting alternate takes and versions which is pretty good for a year and a half, especially considering how many of these would go on to be classics, and ultimately set the stage for Power, Corruption, and Lies, and their next single, Blue Monday, which of course, in legend anyway, would become the best-selling 12-inch single of all time, and would cement New Order's reputation as venerable dance rock wizards. So, I hear you asking, wait a minute, if I have substance in movement... Do I have all these tracks? And the short answer, of course, is no. You're missing the original version of Ceremony. You're missing the real Mesh, because the song labeled as Mesh on Substance is actually Cries and Whispers. You're missing the two Peel Session tracks, Turn the Heater On and Too Late, 
and you're missing the original 12-inch version of Temptation because the one on Substance is a remake from 1987, five years after the original. So yeah, it's not trivial to collect New Order, which I think I dove into in some detail at the end of episode 27, the one about technique. They just have dozens of singles and what seems like a million varieties of each single. Nearly every format had a different track list. And Factory intentionally made it even harder by arranging for exclusive material to come out in other countries. And this was kind of all the rage with the so-called dance acts back in the day. It was much the same with Depeche Mode, except Depeche Mode singles were eventually properly collected into a nice neat box set. Not so with New Order, unless you count the fan-made Recycle box set, which was kind of an internet-only thing for a little while, at least before the cease and desist hit. Anyway, collecting physical CDs, you know, has become a little less rewarding now that you can use eBay and Discogs to kind of laser pinpoint exactly what you want and just wait for it to become available. And it's really a far cry from the joy of visiting used record stores and finding some absolute gem buried in piles of junk and also wasting untold hours and hours and days and weeks of your life. So anyway, why do I love this stuff? Um, Well, I think movement is maybe part of New Order's most interesting period because they were experimenting. They were keen to distance themselves from Joy Division. So they were adopting drastic new technologies, trying different singers, rearranging the band, And some of that would carry over into their next few albums and singles, as I discussed in episode 44. But this set of early songs shows their experimentation in its purest form. It wouldn't be many more years before they fell into a groove or a rut, depending on your point of view. I do love technique, but it's hard to argue that there's any kind of experimentation going on there. It's more or less pop music by the numbers. It's great pop music, but it's still pretty formulaic. This early stuff, though, it's unpredictable, it's rough, it's loose, and the non-movement stuff doesn't really sound like anything that came before or after. It's unique, and that's why I love it. So there you have it, folks. New Order's first album, Movement, and what amounts to an album's worth of singles and oddities. A very interesting part of their history, indeed. Why, it's almost a Cambrian explosion of ideas, if you will. Ideas that would be naturally selected for fitness in upcoming years, resulting in the more focused and sophisticated forms that would see in the late 80s and beyond. Yeah, or something like that. I think I was just channeling Stephen J. Gould there. You're listening to Stronger Than Reason, either on YouTube or as an Apple or Spotify podcast. The show that's killing my voice one hour at a time. And speaking of an hour at a time... I'm trying something new this year. I'm trying to spend less time consuming and more time creating or just being present in the moment without the damn internet distracting me. You know, I'm trying to learn how to daydream again, trying to rekindle my imagination the way I seem to remember my mind working back in the days when a phone was still a gizmo connected to the kitchen wall And social media was the letters page in the back of my comic books. And honestly, it seems to be working so far, trying to turn down the consumption. And I encourage you all to give it a shot too. At least once a day, put the internet down and do something else. Connect with a friend, go for a walk, work on a project, or just go out and look at the sky 
or watch some animals because animals can be really fun to watch. But you know, whatever you do, I'm not suggesting you stop listening to this show. I mean, let's not go nuts here. As always, I thank you for listening and until next time, stay strong.